Thank you for joining us again for our studies that we have been going through during this COVID period, especially at studies on the sayings of Jesus. What I'd like to do this, this time is continue the second part of that one lesson from John chapter 6 that was entitled Lessons of the Loaves. If you have the opportunity and, uh, and you haven't done it as of yet, why don't you pause and read through the entire chapter so that as we go through it, you'll have a full and better understanding as we go verse by verse, as I'm not going to take the time to read the entirety of the text before we plunge into it. Let's get started. John chapter 6. As we begin, let me tell you a story about a young boy, Walter Elias. His family lived in Marceline, Missouri. They had moved there from a city area, and then they had joined into that community in a farm community. They themselves bought one of those houses that was located by the woods, surrounded by some orchards, which was an ideal play area for the young boys like Walter and his brother. They would often go out and play cowboys. They would go out and play explorers. Well, this one day, Walter was out there. And he was in his play mind all by himself. He was still having lots of followers going behind him as his entire troop was marching as explorers through the woods in the deepest, darkest areas of Africa. And then it happened. As he was going through, all of a sudden, he saw something in a tree up ahead. It was an owl perched there, sound asleep. His dad had told him that these owls often hunted at night and they would, stay, they would sleep in the daytime. And he got it in his nine-year-old mind that what he could do is sneak up, grab that bird, and he would have the most extraordinary, awesome, awesome pet of all the kids in the community. So very carefully and cautiously, Walter snuck all the way up got right underneath that bird that was perched on a branch just above his head. And then with speed that astounded even himself, he grabbed both of the feet of that owl. He didn't quite expect the response. He thought that it would be easy, but the owl started fighting. The owl flapped its wings, flapped himself into Walter's face, and even tried to peck at him. He was so stunned, so startled, he didn't know what to do other than to hang on, hang on. But after a few pecks, he threw the owl down, injuring it and its wings, and then started to stomp on the bird. Before he knew it, the bird was dead. Walter was beside himself, disgusted that he had killed this beautiful creature that he wanted to make as his pet. He ran home. Afraid to tell anybody, he didn't say a word, but just went up in his room and cried and cried and cried for an extended period of time. Years later, when he finally told the story, he said that this was a turning point in his life. He had cried himself to a point where he couldn't cry anymore, and then he thought he had to hide the evidence of the crime that he had done. He went back to the woods, he dug a hole and put the remains of that owl in the hole and covered it up, and never said a word. But he said that made a marked impression upon him. After that, he determined he would not attack or kill or harm any creatures, but instead he started drawing them, started drawing many of the birds. Even as a teenager, he said he drew many of those different character, characters of the animals that he saw in the woods, and eventually he built an entire empire of drawings that surrounded a lot of the wood life creatures. Walt Disney grew up to become famous because of that turning point that he said was pivotal in his life. 
We're coming into a text of Scripture that is very pivotal in the lives of a lot of people. It's a turning point for a, a lot of people who were following Jesus. As you just read the chapter, you came to a spot where you realized that there was a whole lot of people following him. It says there was multitudes that came. It says that great crowds came. But then by the end of the chapter, you have these people who wanted to take Jesus by force and make him a king. They they want to, all of a sudden, no longer follow him. In fact, it says in the text, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. A changing point in a lot of lives of those who were in the multitudes for months now. In fact, this is a changing point in Jesus' own ministry. What happens after this is Jesus now spends the next 12 months, the last year from this Passover season until the next, where he is going to do a lot more private training, discipling his 12, preparing them for his sudden departure. So when we go back to the account, like we talked about last week, let's just get a reflection of what we have studied so far and reminder of all the details. As we came to this study last week, we pointed out that Jesus and the twelve had had a busy, busy, busy last few days. And so they decided to go up into a mountain area, it says in chapter 6, that they, that they uh, went up, or verse 3, that they went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. But a lot of the crowds that were in the region because of Passover, that were seeking out Jesus because of his popularity and miracles, they found him. They came to that mountain retreat where he was trying to get a break with his disciples. And so Jesus, was, when he saw them, was moved with compassion, and he decides at the end of the day after teaching them and doing miracles that they needed to be fed. He asked his disciples what to do to test them. And we looked at that last week, how then Jesus did the miracle of multiplying those fish and the loaves and fed all these people till they were totally full. After the miracle, that's when the people, the crowd said, we want to make him king. Look what he's doing. He's wonderful. He's treating us so well. Well, Jesus heard that. And we read in this text that Jesus then had his disciples, they entered into a boat. We read about that down in verses 15, 16, 17. And he sent them out into the boat. Now, the other gospels, they tell us that Jesus remained behind, went up into the mountain and prayed. While the disciples were out in that boat, all of a sudden, they have a real dangerous storm come up. And Jesus comes down from the mountain in the darkness in the middle of that night, and he comes to them and walks upon the water, approaches them. And you know the other segments of the story where Peter gets out of the boat and walks as well. And Jesus then gets back into the boat. And as soon as he gets back in the boat, there's the miracle of sudden peace and the miracle that they are suddenly at the other side of the lake at the shore where they were headed for. And so Jesus Christ has done all these miracles. We come to morning time. The dawn has arisen and the people back on the, the area where they had left, back at the other shore, they're looking for Jesus. They get word that Jesus is nine miles down the shoreline. And they hurry to him, and when they approach him and find him nearer to Capernaum, they can't figure this out. How did he get there? We saw him on the mountain in the middle of the night. We know that his disciples had sailed. How did he do this? We were watching and didn't see him take another boat. And so they're asking Jesus the questions, where all of a sudden we read in verse 22, In 23 and 24, the people are going to come to him and ask and say, Rabbi, verse 25, how did you get here? How did you come hither? 
is their question. And so in this conversation, Jesus begins a dialogue with them. And this initiates a conversation that goes back and forth that is the rest of chapter 6. And in this conversation that happens possibly right by the shoreline, possibly as they're walking towards town, it ends up that in this conversation, they end up, according to verse 59, in the synagogue. How many of those thousands are there or standing outdoors? We don't know. We just have the record that it started with a great multitude, and as they were asking the questions he was talking, they end up in a synagogue. And as a result of that conversation, we said that what happens is Jesus then comes to a point where he teaches them and they don't like it. Now, let me explain what he teaches. Just as an overview, what he says in that conversation that basically ends up a lot of the people leaving because of it, he says some phenomenal things. We're just going to highlight a few of the verses. He points out in that, in that text that salvation is only by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Oh, he says it several ways, several different, different times. He says this is the work of God in verse 29, that you believe on him whom God hath sent. He says in verse 40 very clearly, this is the will of him that sent me that everyone which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life. He says it again down in verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me has everlasting life. He says it again in verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. He says similar things in verse 53. Verily, I say unto you, Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you don't have life in you. Whoso eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him from the dead. Now, for some of you who would look and say, well, wait a minute. What's he mean by eating the flesh and drinking the blood? What's he mean by coming to him? If you make a comparison of just several of these verses, let me, let me just do it simply and quickly for you. Let's just take verse 40 and compare it. Take it with a verse that we find the words we find in verse 54. They both talk about anyone. This is open to anyone. Then they both talk about the idea of if anyone does something, they will have eternal life. They both make that same comment. They both say that those who have eternal life, he will raise them up. And so there's so many parallels. The one parallel we lift, left out is this. The requirement of the people is see and believe. In one verse, the requirement is eat and drink. There, there's the same thought. As you jump down further into the text, you would find out that what Jesus talks about when he talks about the idea of eating and drinking, he makes it very clear in verse 63. He is talking about spiritually eating and drinking, not physically doing some type of an act or cannibalism or communion. He's saying spiritually, as I'm teaching, I'm talking about spiritual idea of eating and drinking or literally, come, believe, receive, be born again. And so he mentions that throughout this text. He also points out, as we go through the text, from, that salvation is something that, according to his teaching, is a work of God. He mentions this in chapter 6. Let's jump down to about verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me were to draw that person. He says in verse 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. He says in verse 39, the same idea. This is the, Father will, uh, the Father's will that sent me, 
that of all which he hath given me should I lose nothing. The point being is that you and I can't get saved without the working of God in our hearts and lives. It's not something that we can produce. We have no desire in and of ourselves to get closer to the Lord, to come to him. It has to be the convicting, drawing work of the Holy Spirit. That's very clearly portrayed in Jesus' teaching. Then he also makes it very clear and very evident that not only is salvation a work of God, but it is requiring a response of the individual. The words that we put up here that indicate you have to believe. You have to come to me. You have to receive me, eat me. That is, take me into your life, being born again, believing, calling upon the Lord. All those different terms that are in this text as well as outside of this text indicate that we have a part in responding to God's salvation. Now, somebody asked, I believe it was Spurgeon one time, they asked him, how do you reconcile this idea of salvation is a work of God, salvation requires man's response? And he says, I don't have any problem with that. You never have to reconcile friends when, when they're not at opposition. These two are not at opposition. We can't get saved without the working of God in our heart and the Holy Spirit. And God doesn't force us to get saved. We have to respond by believing. He makes another idea that's very clear in this text. That the salvation he's talking about is a salvation that has an eternal guarantee. Verse 37, he makes that comment. That those who come to me I will in no wise cast out. He says in verse 39, he will lose none of them. He makes the comment as you go a little bit further into the text where he says down in verse 40, this is the will of him that sent me that everyone that sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life. And on we go through the text with that idea that there's an eternal guarantee to those of us who respond. And then there's another thought here that's so important that he says this several times in the text, and I give you the different references, where he makes the comment, I will raise him up, that that salvation that we have will culminate, will come to its fullest maximum when we are physically resurrected and given the eternal bodies. So there's a lot of teaching here about the salvation work, which it comes down to after he's taught all this, here's the response of the people. The people murmured within themselves, and it says that they say in verse 60, they said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? They, they have a tough time understanding. They have a tough time accepting because here's what Jesus was getting at. You have to make fellowship with me your greatest concern in life. And that's the gist of this entire message. You have to make fellowship with me the greatest concern of your life. They weren't ready to do that. They struggled with that. And for that very reason, they said, this is too hard. And we read in verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back. You know, it's not changed over the years. There are many people who hear the claims of Jesus Christ, and they come to a pivotal decision in their life, and they say, no, I don't want him. There are some who may say, I want him as Savior, but they come to a pivotal point where they say, I don't want him to control my life. And they walk away, no longer following him as a disciple, as these disciples and others of old. And so we come to this text with this idea, asking this question. Why is it that many people refuse, stop following Jesus Christ? Well, one of the reasons that we don't want to repeat in our life is because 
Many of those people who stopped following Christ, they put greater stock in the physical wants and needs of their life than in fellowship with Jesus Christ. They were more concerned about the here and now. They were more concerned about their bellies and their comfort than they were about fellowship with Jesus Christ. How, how do we know that? A great multitude followed him because of his miracles. The physical deeds and miraculous signs that he was doing for them. He even made comment, you seek me because you did eat and were filled. The thing that thrilled you wasn't my teachings, wasn't my person. It was my power that all of a sudden you were experiencing and things were going grand and great in your life. And so he makes the statement to them and it's very clear in the original. He says, stop in verse 27. We're in our King James. It reads, labor not. Literally says, stop laboring. Change your thinking. What you're doing is you're laboring for meat. You're laboring for things in this world that perish. But you should be Focusing on that which endures unto everlasting life. The spiritual truths. The fellowship with me. And I don't think it's really changed over the years. There are, there are a lot of people who would say, I'm following Christ as long as things are good for me. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong to have things. That Jesus provides food. He did for these people. The food wasn't the problem. The miracles, the healings, the good health that he provided, they weren't an issue. They weren't a problem. They weren't bad in and of themselves. Jesus provided those blessings. But what it was, the issue was that these people were saying, the only reason we're following you is because you're filling our pocketbook. You're filling our bellies. You're filling our health, our health requirements. You are doing the job of our doctor, our insurance companies, you know, all those things. And we'll follow you as long as you're meeting our physical needs, desires, wants, and all those other things that go along. Pastor Arts in his series on the wilderness wanderings. What a classic illustration of people who were happy and grand and going well as long as everything was okay. But as soon as there was a water shortage for a short time, as soon as there was a food shortage, oh man, then they, were, they wanted to stop following God. They wanted to go back. Isn't that what Jesus warned about even when he told the parable of the different soils? That there were some who would hear, but as soon as all of a sudden the cares of this world, as soon as all of a sudden the different weeds would come up. As soon as it got a little bit difficult or there was a challenge or there was a problem and things weren't being met the way they thought they should, then they were going to depart. And so Jesus is making it very clear that these individuals that were following him and stopped following him, they were doing it only for this reason, which many do today. They turn to Christ because they want a physical healing. They want wealth. They turn to Christ because they want to get out of some problem. They want him to fix some issue at work or at home or some social or interrelational type of an issue. Or they want to be popular. It's the popular thing to do. Or they want to keep in good graces with family members to make sure they get an inheritance. So we'll follow Christ as long as it profits me. But soon as there's no profit... Then they turn their back. Then all of a sudden, when there's a lack of a job, when all of a sudden they experience poor health, then no more following Jesus Christ. That's a danger. That's a problem that many people are challenged with. You and I need to remember that Christianity and commitment to Christ is a lot more than our circumstances and being comfortable. Our fellowship with Christ needs to be our, our priority, not our comfort our physical benefits. 
There is another reason why many of these people stopped following Christ. They were trusting more in themselves than in Christ himself. Well, that's clear from this text. Soon as Jesus makes the comment to them and says that you need to stop laboring for the, for the meat that, uh, that perishes, their immediate response that we see in verse 28 is, oh, you mentioned work, you mentioned labor. What do we do? What shall we do that we might work the works of God? What do we do so that we can get on God's good side? We can enjoy his favor. Tell us what we need to do. And so he's going to challenge them. He's going to talk about that. And when he makes his response in this dialogue, verse 29, he says, wait a minute, I'm not talking about you doing work. The work of God is that you believe, that you trust in me and him who sent me. And so he's trying to make it very clear. You people have this wrong. You're trusting in yourself. You're not trusting in me. And for many people in our day and age, that's hard. It's hard to completely come to a point where you're trusting in God, that you're letting go and letting God, as we would say. There are some who are even worshiping at this very moment in different places who are just involved to the best of their abilities, to the fullest of their abilities. They are consumed by religious practices. They are, they are just doing whatever they can that would help them merit favor with God. Oh, it might be incantations, it might be candles, it might be baptisms or confirmations. It could be all kinds of ritualistic prayers or keeping traditions. What shall we do that we might do the works of God? No, you need to believe. You need to just simply trust. And it's interesting that he would say this as he's entering into a synagogue where these Jews were really steeped in those traditions that they thought they could keep and they could earn God's favor. And so that one reason of not trusting, my, that, that shows up even today in some of the followers, the believers, within even the church of Jesus Christ. There are many who would sit in church and say, oh, I'm going to try my best, and I'm going to work really hard at doing what I can to serve Jesus Christ, which we want to serve him. We want to, we want to labor for him. But they are doing it as if they have to produce the fruits of ministry. They have to produce the fruits of the Spirit. They have to work hard so that they can become holy. They have to really do something well so that they can win the world. And, and yes, we have an involvement. We have a participation in it. But you know what? Where we need to start is not improving ourselves and wearing ourselves down. We need to remember that we need to put fellowship with Christ as our most important priority. Instead of just laboring, we got to stake time for prayer, for meditation, for learning of Christ by reading his word. What do you find yourself doing? Do you find yourselves at times getting frustrated with Christianity? Or should I say your model of Christianity? Because you're trying so hard, and yet you look and say, I'm not getting anywhere. But ask yourself the question, how much time and energy are you putting into prayer? meditation, in learning about Christ by reading his word. Fellowship with Christ must be our most important concern. Now, some people struggle with that because they expect Jesus to keep on amazing and thrilling them. That's what these people did. As you just continue in this running dialogue, these people are all of a sudden going to say to Jesus, okay, okay, the works and works of God. What sign... Do you show then, verse 30, that we may see and believe? 
What are you going to do? What work are you going to do? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so here these people are. They bring up Moses. They bring up the manna of old. That's interesting that they would do that. And one of the reasons is that they would do this is they knew from the Old Testament that according to the book of Deuteronomy, if you look at the passage, Moses is told that there is going to be a greater than Moses who is going to come. And when this greater than Moses comes, he is going to be God's representative. He's going to speak and he's going to do greater wonders than Moses did. Now, from the people's perspective, they had heard, and it was a popular tradition at the time of the New Testament era, the rabbis were teaching that in a popular mode that when the Messiah comes, he will do similar feats that Moses did. One of those that they highlighted was providing food in the wilderness, providing some type of miracle to feed the people just like the manna that came down from heaven. And so when Jesus gets involved here, Jesus fed them in the wilderness, which would be an implied claim, I'm Messiah, this is what your own teachers are saying. But to them, they are saying to him, hey, wait a minute, Moses did a lot of signs. In fact, when it comes to this manna, it came down every day. He, did, you know, he provided that for us people time and time again. So you did one miracle. That was nice. That was good. But what about doing what Moses did? You're supposed to be greater than Moses, as you claim. Then why aren't you doing this again and again? And again, why aren't you wowing us today like you wowed us yesterday? And so they're bringing up this idea. They're implying through this whole conversation that they wanted Jesus to keep on doing miracles. Keep on wowing them. Keep on thrilling them. And if not, we're not going to follow you. Does that ever happen? Do you think that ever happens today? That there are people who will be attracted to the gospel only and as long as something phenomenal and amazing happens. I, I, I want some type of miracle to happen. There was a young man who used to come to our church on a regular basis that I led to the Lord and discipled years and years ago. And he got caught up in this miracle movement, going to another church in, the, in our locality. And his determination was, the miracles make me excited. The miracles of seeing people have all kinds of physical miracles done to them. That keeps me going for the Lord. Wow, without the miracles, I'm not going to go for the Lord. And I said, well, what about the Word of God? I don't need the Word of God as long as I have the power of God and the thrill of God every time I go to church. And at your church, all you guys do is you preach the Bible. I need to see the outworking of those miracles. And he, for a period of time, continued in that church. But the last I heard, he's far away from the Lord. Why? The miracles ran out. The, the wowing had to get bigger and better every time, or he wasn't so wowed. And after a while, if Christ doesn't excite me, then I'll move on to something else. You know, we have to be careful that in church, in Christianity, we don't get caught up with this idea of, hey, wait a minute. You know, you got to give me hype. you got to give me entertainment. you got to wow me. If you don't wow me, I'm not going to continue worshiping Jesus Christ. That's a shame. That's a shame that, that some, uh, some churches or some of us as individuals say that it's all about getting pumped up and getting excited and getting something phenomenal and exciting rather than fellowship with Jesus Christ that thrills my soul. I need to have something mystical and magical in order to keep me going spiritually. You won't. You won't keep going spiritually. 
You know, and if, and if in circles we get caught up as a church of trying to wow people, if we get caught up with this idea that, that we have got to do something phenomenal and amazing or the teens won't be interested, then we're raising a generation of very shallow, shallow people in their faith. Jesus even comments on that. Now, earlier he had told us, beware of those who even come and do the miracle signs because one day I'm going to say to them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And then he has Paul write later on, be careful that even in the end days, there are going to be those who are going to be performing lying wonders to deceive, to distract. So if our faith, if our loyalty to Christ is based upon wow, based upon wonders, based upon miracles rather than fellowship, we're on a dangerous, dangerous path. And so Jesus makes the comment here. He's going to correct them. He starts off in verse 32. He says, you know, Moses didn't provide the manna. You keep on talking about Moses. He makes it very clear. God provided the manna. That's what Moses even wrote. God provided the manna. And then he goes on, he says, now when you think about it, the bread of heaven is he which comes down from heaven, which gives life unto the, into the world. He's basically saying, I got a better, God has a better manna, and it's not in a host or a wafer, it's in a he, a person. And here it is, it's being presented to you, a better bread of life. And he's going to go on to say, I am the bread of life, one of his several I am's. And so Jesus is going to make claim that he is far superior to the manna. He is far superior to the work of Moses. It is interesting. If you do this in this text, just make a comparison of his comments. He talks about the manna of old, which was a phenomenal provision, which happened every day, which he provided for those, those decades that they were in the wilderness. And it was, it was something that God did in a miraculous fashion, which was thrilling. But then he points out how he is much better. Let, let's think this through. Manna came down from heaven. Jesus Christ came down from heaven. Manna is stated as being provided by God. By God, He makes it very clear, I am sent by God. Not just a provision, but a, a messenger. He makes it clear that you needed to have your physical eating of that bread, which we understand the manna had to be ingested yeah, physically. Now he's making it clear, you have to ingest me spiritually. You have to, as you would food, take me into your life. Bring me as your nourishment, your, your provision. He makes it clear that manna is a gift from God. That God sent it. That God gave it. But he makes it clear that he is the gift of God himself. That he is far better by his claims. I am more than just a gift. I am God in the flesh. He points out that, that the manna sustained physical life. Which it did for those in the wilderness so they wouldn't starve. But he's going to make clear that the bread of life in him gives eternal life. It births. It then continues on forever and ever and ever. He says, points out, you had to eat every day the manna provided. You only need to take me and eat me just once. The verbiage that he uses at different passages here in this text is once and for all, just take me into your life. At one, moment, at one time. It was, the manna was perishable. It didn't last beyond that morning provision and then last in the basket through the day. But then the next day it was gone. It didn't last. And even if you, even if you tried to salvage it or to store it, you remember the accounts. It, it just dried up, withered up. It was no good. Jesus Christ is forever himself. 
He's bread that never, that never goes, goes moldy, that is always fresh. That manna was for one era and one time only. He makes it clear that he is for all time. In fact, the manna was just for the Hebrews, but Jesus makes it very clear in verse 51. His provision of life as being the bread of life is for all people throughout the world at all times. He is much better, much better than the manna. Now, that meant that Jesus has made many claims here. And some of the people stopped following because they did not accept the claims he was making. Now, I've already pointed out that he made sure that they understood that he was an individual who had come down from heaven. He repeated this several times. Look at the text where he says, I came down from heaven, I came down from heaven, came down from heaven. That, that was understood by the Jews. They clearly understood that what he was saying, according to verse 41, he was claiming that he was divine. As you go on, they make the comment, they murmur at him. They are upset at him. And they go on and they make the comment, wait a minute, you didn't come from heaven. We know where you were born, you know. If we had to check out your birth certificate, you're the son of Joseph. And the mother, you know, and he asked these, they asked this question, how can you claim you're coming down from heaven? Because... As we saw in John chapter 5, the claim of being coming down from heaven was in the Jewish mind a claim to divinity. They murmured at it. They didn't like that claim. And so they, they were upset. Their leaders had gotten very angry, if you remember in John chapter 5, that they wanted to kill him for it. These people, they're still in this, 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 uh, on this fence line and they're going, wait a minute, this isn't right, this isn't wrong. You know, what we want to believe, we don't accept this. And so Jesus makes other claims. He claimed to come down from heaven. He claimed as well that he was better than Moses. That's a huge claim, folk. That would be saying, I fulfill Deuteronomy 18, a greater than Moses. He claims to be the one who would resurrect them several times. Look up the text. Look where he says, I will raise him up at the last day. I will raise him up. We saw this two weeks ago that in John 5, when he made those resurrection claims, that was understood as claiming to do something only God could do. It's a claim to deity. It's a claim to being God in the flesh. He claims that he is the person giving eternal life. Not a church, not a synagogue, but him. That he was that provider. He claims that once you believe in me, I will keep you safe and secure. You can never run away and I won't lose you or I won't cast you off. So he also claims that if you come to me, you will never hunger nor thirst. Ideas, I will meet every one of your spiritual needs. We're going to embark on that in depth when we go here in this next few days and start a study on Colossians. The idea of Jesus is the all in all, that he provides all we need. And so he made all these claims, but then he added to it in verse 53, if you look, that if you do not accept me, that is, eat my flesh, drink my blood, you don't have life in you. You don't have eternal life. You're going to be damned. And so they have to now respond. And what these people did, they responded by saying, okay, too much. We don't want to accept it. Is that any different than some today? Are there some today who question following Jesus Christ because his claims to be God? That that unsettles them. That bothers them. 
And so they try to deny it. They try to decry it. They try to, to make it an impossible idea by, by trying to point out where there might be an inconsistency from some of those exaggerated accounts of Jesus Christ. That they struggle with the idea that Jesus Christ had supernatural ability. That Jesus Christ really cares for them. And as a result, they don't want to believe. They don't want to follow him. There are individuals who they struggle with the claim that Jesus made that he is creator, that he is their judge, that he is their master. And they will rebel. They will resist following him because they don't want to submit to him. There are some who follow the Lord for a while, but then they don't like the idea that he claims lordship in their lives, that you are bought with a price, that you are not your own. He, they don't like the idea that, that we ought to present our bodies a living sacrifice. A, a, and they resist it. They rile at that very idea to the point that some, they, won't, they don't even believe that he, that he should have moral standards over their life. They don't want to yield to him. They don't think that he can make their life full and satisfying. They walk away. They might grow up in a church like this. They might be here for a period of several weeks, months, maybe years. But then they come to a point where they say, I'm not going to walk with him no more because I don't want him to be the Lord. I don't want him to be the one giving me a moral code. I don't want him to be the one who is calling the shots on my life. And I don't know if he really cares and I don't know if he really judges. And they shift in their practice away from following Jesus Christ. Well, the warning is very clear. The text is challenging us that, you know what? God has made this clear that God also will exalt Jesus Christ. He did. And he gave him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and on earth, and every tongue should confess Jesus as Lord. My friend, we either bow today or we bow in the future with shame. Jesus Christ claims to be Savior God, Lord. Submit to that claim. Yield to that claim. Allow him to have that authority in your life. But some f stop for other reasons. We've given you four. Let me add the others quickly. There's a fifth reason why they stop following. They put more stock in what others thought and said than what Jesus thought or said. Does anybody do that today? Are there individuals who are more concerned about the crowds than the Christ? Here in this text, what happened is the multitude did come. They listened to Jesus Christ. But as we pointed out, they ask him questions and they even make some comments. How can this be? Then they murmur. And then it says they strive amongst themselves. They even heard him, which is ironic because they make this comment. Many of them who heard him said, this is a hard saying, who can hear him? There is nothing in the original language that makes a difference in the hearings. They heard, but they say, who can hear? Who can, who can take this in? Who can understand this? And so they end up talking amongst themselves. You can read the text a little bit further. And so there's a popular sentiment sweeping through the crowd that is, that is resisting Jesus Christ. And some who have listened in on this conversation, some who have watched their friends ask Jesus, they have to choose. They have to ask this question. When the crowd starts going, will I go also? And so many of them did. In fact, almost all of them, many of the disciples went back and walked no more with him because they followed the crowd rather than the Christ. Does it happen today? 
I mean, seriously, do you put more weight on what your friends think than what Christ says? Are you an individual that you say, I will decide what I'm going to do based upon if my friends approve? Well, what about does it please Christ? When it comes to simple things like how are you going to work at work? When it comes to something like how are you going to conduct yourself dating? When it comes to how you're going to allow certain speech and words in your life or will you strive to be really godly or how will you treat other people? Is it based upon what Christ said or what other people think and say? Will you serve no matter what others imply or say or do because Christ asked you to serve? So who controls you? The crowds or Christ. Remember? Fellowship with Christ ought to be our priority concern, not fellowship with the crowds. So these people, they walk away. They, they say that we don't, want to, we don't want to make Christ the object of our fellowship. We're more concerned about our friends, our tradition, our families, things like that. Some of them, they stopped following Christ because they just simply thought it was too much. He was asking way too much. That's where you have that statement in verse 60, where they make that comment, this is a hard saying. That idea that this is so difficult. So I ask myself this question. Is fellowship with Christ, is that something that is too hard? Is it more important for me to be comfortable in my life physically, to be entertained, to have fun? Is it more important to follow religious traditions and keep family and friends happy than my fellowship with Christ? Is it more important that I'm popular with people or I have fellowship with Jesus Christ? Is it, is it the idea that in my life, my goal and my purpose is to make others and me happy? Or is the goal, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, strength, and thy mind? This is a very pointed text. When many people decide it's too hard to follow Christ, who, who is the Lord of your life? Who is the one that you're dedicating and you're determining to maintain fellowship with? Christ? Others? They, they simply didn't follow because some weren't believers. That's the concluding conversation. Where Jesus makes the comments as he's wrapping up, he says, there are some of you that believe not. For he knew from the beginning who they were that would believe not and who, that, who would betray them. And he says, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given of the Father. And from that time, many stopped following. There were some individuals that just weren't born again. They were not, they were not inclined to respond to the leading of the Spirit of God, the convicting of God. That, that's not so surprising. We read the warning that John writes later on, years later to the church, that some went out from us, but they were not of us. They would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest, that it might show that they really weren't born again after all. So this text wraps up with this, this thought that, are you sure you're a believer in Jesus Christ? We, we have friends. We have people who used to worship with us. Some of them may have stopped because they really weren't born again. Do you really know that you are saved? Have you repented? Do you have the fruits of the Spirit? Do you have that desire to obey? Do you, do you experience conviction when you sin? 
Do you believe Christ really cares that he is Lord, that he is God? Are you an individual that you are confident that when the Lord returns, you will be raptured? That you will stand before him at judgment and be allowed to enter into heaven? Are you sure? If not, you need to get born again. You need to settle any of those doubts. You need not wait. Because the danger of waiting could be like these people, drifting off, shutting down, becoming calloused. This story is filled with all kinds of details, but then it wraps up with this, the disciples. He turns to them and says, will you also go away? We read about that at the very end. He doesn't want them to leave. He wants them to stay, but he's not going to force them. So Peter responds. And as you read in Peter's response, where he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and are sure that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, we have believed this and we continue to believe this. This is our our firmest conviction. And so he says, and he uses the we, the we, the we. And Jesus corrects him. He says, have I not chosen the 12 of you and one of you is a devil? The we doesn't include all of you. Peter, you're speaking for 12 and really there's one that's not. But what is Peter getting at? Peter's basically saying, you're our God. You're our salvation. You're our Lord. Jesus, our fellowship with you is the most important concern of our lives. We're not going to quit. No matter how difficult it gets, no matter what the crowds do, we're going to remain loyal because fellowship with you is the most important thing. Do you have that same commitment? Do you have that same loyalty? We said at the beginning that in Walt Disney's life, when he was a child, there was a pivotal point that changed. And he, he was unconscious of all the great change it would be. But it happened. Maybe this is a pivotal week for you. Where you need to make some changes. Whether you will start following Christ and focusing the way you should, or if you will start drifting off. So you have to ask yourself these questions. This week, will you focus on fellowship with Christ? Will you make it your priority this week? Can this be a pivotal turning point in your life where you're going to read, talk, reflect, think about him more and more and more? And you can do it. You can get closer to Christ. Every one of you can. There's a, there's a gal that many of you have heard about, and you would know her from history. She was visiting in Jerusalem as she was in her uh, mid-age years on a goodwill tour of that region, visiting there and speaking on behalf of handicapped people. Well, one morning there was a preacher there in that same region. His name is Gene Edwards, and he's written several different books. And in this book, he tells about this encounter that he had with this woman on that Sunday morning, early that morning, when they were both in Jerusalem on two different uh, purposes. But they were in Jerusalem, and he went to the Garden Tomb area. He wanted to sit there and reflect by himself early that morning. And he says, while he was sitting there reflecting, all of a sudden he saw this gal come through with her companion. He immediately recognized her. He knew who she was. She was world famous. Her name is Helen Keller. At this time, Ann Sullivan is no longer her companion. And at this time in her life, as you know, that this woman who was blind and, and as well as couldn't hear and, and was a mute, that she developed the ability to communicate in t- over a period of time. And she even became a speaker that, though she never heard her voice, she was conducting all kinds of speeches, and so she would speak in this flat, monotone voice. And he saw her come in and, and through the area, and he recognized her immediately, had known she was there for this conference, and she went into the tomb area. 
what is supposedly is a tomb of Christ. She and her companion, and he determined, I want to meet this woman. I want to meet her. So he walked over, and as the companion stepped out, leading Helen Keller out, he said to the companion, I'm Pastor so-and-so, and I've, you know, know, I know all about her history. I know that even when she was a young teenage girl, her father, who was a born-again man, wanted to make sure that now that his daughter could read and communicate, that she heard the gospel. And he had the pre- preacher come several times to the house. And as a young teen, she had made a profession of faith in Christ and frequently talked about Jesus Christ being her Savior in these tours. And so he said, I want to meet her. And as he was relaying that to the companion who could hear and see and talk, the companion started to, via, side, via the, the language hand, uh, handwriting in the hand, to Helen Keller, communicating this as Pastor Gene Edwards. He wants to talk with you, da-da-da-da. And he said, all of a sudden, Miss Keller did something that he will never forget. She raised both her hands to the sky. And she made this statement that he said, I will never forget. Though she didn't have lots of variation, as loud as she could, she said this, there is no darkness here. There is no darkness here. Her fellowship with Christ gave her the hope and the happiness that even though she couldn't see anything, she couldn't communicate the way we can communicate. She was thrilled because of Christ and what he provided My friend, you can have that same enthusiasm and that thrill in your life. It's not going to come by crowds or come by things. It's not going to come by doing your own own stuff. It's going to come by you simply saying, I am going to make fellowship with Christ my greatest concern this week. I pray by the grace of God that you will do that. Father, thank you for my friends and their attentiveness. We pray that you would bless them, help them to draw close to you and that you would draw close to them in return. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. God bless.